Welcome to In Your Brain. I'm a neuroscience student at the University of Florida, and I'm super curious about everything having to do with the brain. Join me to discover what happens in your brain. Breathing is this thing we do effortlessly, and sometimes we forget its power. In this episode, we will discuss how oxygen levels and carbon dioxide levels can affect our nervous system, and how the rhythm of your breath and your body starts in your brain. Our expert guest is Dr. Gordon Mitchell, a professor at UF, director at the Breathe Center, and a pioneer in the field. Let's start with a simple question. How do we breathe? Sure. Um, you know, breathing is something I've taught about for a lot of years. And one of the reasons it's hard for people to get a good handle on it is that it's automatic. It's not one of those things that's in your consciousness, if you're lucky. But breathing itself, when it's working well, is all about regulating oxygen and, and very importantly, carbon dioxide in your body. People tend to think the more about oxygen. It's not really fair. Um, carbon dioxide is equally important. You have to rid the body of that. And so how does it all happen? Well, in an automatic fashion, you've got brainstem medullary neurons. So these are just neuron populations that are there in your medulla. And they have one job from the moment you're born to the moment you die. They've got to keep some semblance of a rhythmic neural activity that drives the muscles, that drive the breath, that keep you alive. And then they have another job. They have to respond to changes in condition. If I were to get up and just start walking, I would increase the metabolic need for oxygen by about fourfold. I would increase the need to excrete carbon dioxide by about fourfold. And if I don't increase my breathing enough to match that, I can't continue walking. Oxygen would drop so low you would pass out or CO2 would raise so high you would pass out. It's kind of like a competition for what can knock you out first. But we do respond. And that means that we're responding to inputs that come from higher brain centers that's, that send the command to exercise. In this case, just walking. It also is true that, that when you take a breath, you've got sensory receptors, so neurons that are in your lung that sense, did you succeed in having the respiratory muscles contract? the chest wall to expand, the diaphragm to descend. Did that work and expand your lungs? And that gives you feedback immediately about what that's doing. There's another layer of feedback that happens, and that is that you have changes in oxygen or changes in carbon dioxide in your arterial blood that show up when you didn't do a great job. And then you have CO2 and O2 chemosensors. Again, neurons specially adapted to taste the blood basically, for low oxygen, they're called the carotid bodies, they're found in the neck, or um, CO2 sensors, which does include the carotid body, but they're mainly in the brainstem itself, different neuron populations that sense CO2 in the medulla. And they will drive or suppress breathing as is appropriate to get the CO2 and the O2 back where they belong. Not really that simple, so let's go over it. We have a group of neurons in our brainstem, specifically in the medulla, that produce these rhythmic firing patterns and send outputs to other neurons, telling them to contract respiratory muscles and breathe. We also have sensory neurons all over the body that give feedback to these neurons in the medulla on how well they are adjusting to the demand of the system, 
keeping the necessary balance between oxygen and CO2 levels. Balance is a common theme in neuroscience. There's another layer, and it's the one that we sort of specialize at here at the University of Florida, and that's that both of these elements, both the, the central drive to breathe, the rhythm generating central pattern generator, as it were, and these different layers of sensory feedback, they can all learn. And that's something that we didn't know uh, not so distant past. And what I mean by that is they exhibit a form of neuroplasticity, multiple forms of neuroplasticity, which means that the system adapts with changes in the environment, changes in your body, changes in due to the experiences that you've had, whether it's gaining or losing weight, whether it's climbing a mountain or getting pregnant, for example. They all require that your diaphragm and your other respiratory muscles, and there are many, that they all act in a different coordinated fashion to get enough gas into your lungs and out. Most respiratory centers are devoted to the lungs themselves. And as much as I love my lungs, as important as they are, the act of taking a breath is, it's a neural and a muscular act. It's not, a, it's not about the lungs. They just passively follow. The signal to breathe is coming from the brain. I want to know more about how these neurons in our brainstem, called central pattern generators, can show neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity refers to the idea that neurons and neural networks in the brain can change and adapt their firing patterns, meaning our brains have the ability to learn and reorganize in response to our experiences. The best models of neuroplasticity in breathing are at the sensory receptor, that little tiny organ that tastes the oxygen in your arterial blood called the carotid body. And on the other end, the motor neurons themselves. So these would be the motor neurons that innervate the diaphragm, the phrenic motor neurons. It's also the intercostal motor neurons that make your ribs go up and down and expand and contract the dimension of the, the thorax. These motor neurons exhibit profound neuroplasticity. So both the sensory neurons tasting oxygen and CO2 in your blood and the motor neurons activating muscles can show neuroplasticity. We can train our respiratory system to do things like play tennis or climb a mountain by adapting the demands of the system over time. And our brain will then send signals to our muscles to make sure oxygen levels stay in equilibrium. Serotonin is a neurotransmitter that seems to play an important role here. And it's that repetitive or episodic pattern that is what triggers our neuroplasticity. And at least when you keep the oxygen within certain bounds, um, the magic isn't the low oxygen itself. It's the serotonin release in the motor nucleus. That's the key. What does the low oxygen have to do with it? It's just activating these chemoreceptors that activate neurons in the brainstem that release the serotonin. I could have equally electrically stimulated that nerve without low oxygen and had the same effect, and that's exactly what you see. Dr. Mitchell's early research took advantage of this neuroplasticity caused by periods of low oxygen, also known as intermittent hypoxia, to help restore breath and limb function in patients with spinal cord injuries. This strategy of therapeutic acute terminate hypoxia seems to induce synaptic plasticity in the spinal cord and can strengthen neural pathways communicating with respiratory motor systems. 
And so we, we worked with paraplegics. I worked with Zeb Reimer at, at um, what was then the Rehabilitation Institute of Chicago, where we were looking at the ability to, of someone who's in a wheelchair to generate plantar flexion torque. So they're just like pushing on a gas pedal. How hard can they push with volitional control? And if we then gave them 15 episodes of low oxygen, one minute each, and waited one half an hour, what would happen? And the answer was they could increase their strength, neural strength, not muscle, but it shows up as increased muscle contraction. But their motor neurons produced a signal 83% greater after a half an hour. And these are individuals that have had a spinal cord injury on average 15 years before. So they have no prognosis for meaningful improvement at that point, let alone in a half an hour. And this was the first time that this was showed? That was the first time. That's so cool. There are now clinical trials currently happening using intermittent hypoxia to help humans with diseases that cause respiratory failure. It's so awesome to see research being translated to therapeutic use. I like to think about breathing, like the rhythm or frequency of my body, and I like to notice how my breathing rate changes depending on my state of mind. When I feel relaxed and comfortable, I notice my breath is at a slower speed. But if I'm feeling anxious or stressed, then my breathing rate usually increases really fast. And this communication between my state of mind and my breathing rate seems to be bidirectional. So I want to know if and how we can think of breath as a way to control our state of mind and if there's any therapeutic use to breath work. What you're talking about now is more, can we use that conscious ability to regulate our breathing to then secondarily regulate other features, other things that are going on in our bodies. And there are clues all over the place. And as you as you know, there are many different disciplines where people think about breathing as a means of harnessing good things like fighting anxiety, fighting inflammation, the ones you mentioned, but I've heard other claims as well. And, and although there's, there's a lot of reports about that, there aren't very many studies that have truly gone into how that happens from a neurobiological mechanism. The machinery is probably there. By machinery, I mean the neural connections and the interactions are there where breathing could affect many different physiological functions or you know, even things like affective disorders like depression on the extreme. I don't have doubt that that's possible. In each case, we can only speculate because studies are needed what it would be. You did mention inflammation. And so one of the ways that I would connect that is, and this is speculative, but each piece has strong support behind it. When you inflate your lungs and those stretch receptors fire, what it does is shift the balance of your autonomic system towards parasympathetic discharge. Okay, so that's that calming thing too. That's part of the whole anxiety thing you're alluding to. But this is coming the other way. Coming down the vagus, there are the parasympathetic fibers. And what we know is that there's a whole connection between the brain and the immune system that we didn't suspect 30 years ago. So cool to think about the connection between breathing and immune response. But like Dr. Mitchell said, more studies are definitely needed that look into the mechanisms and effects of altering breath rate on the body. 
where I see it um, clouded sometimes is people intuit that by breathing deeply, I'm somehow changing the oxygen, for example, and, and you are. But hemoglobin, the way we normally live here in Gainesville, has already got a full load of oxygen. And you don't affect the oxygen level a whole lot unless you really hold your breath for a very, very long time. And so when, it, when we talk about breath techniques versus intermittent hypoxia, they're kind of different. And people don't have an easy way of understanding what we do. They're thinking we're manipulating breathing, and we're actually not. We're manipulating what breathing is working with. If you wanted to, to know the analogy or what we'd actually technically do, if you had a spinal cord injury and you were sitting there in one of our clinical trials, a mask would go on for brief periods of time. And what we do is just change the inspired gas from 21%, which is what's in the air around us, to about 9%, which is pretty much equivalent to being at 20,000 feet. So you don't actually notice when we're doing this. We ask our subjects all the time. They're not feeling it. They're not distressed by it at all. Intermittent hypoxia is really all about decreasing the amount of oxygen in the air, therefore decreasing the amount of oxygen that enters our bodies, while breathwork doesn't really do this. It does seem to alter other neural pathways related to states of calmness and relaxation. I'm curious to know more about the future directions of this field. So I think that the research is going to go in a couple of directions. One is from our our work, it's going to be heavily hitting the translation. That's what I'd like to see as, as my career winds to an end, is take that as far as it needs to go. We still have a lot of basic science we're learning And we have what I I like to refer to as a translational flywheel. It's where we have good communication, and I speak to Randy, and I speak to Zev or Malap or to Emily Fox, and I just say, this is what we just discovered. Let's get the next trial like that. And they tell us, well, the subjects told us this, or they behave that way. Here's something we still need to understand if we're going to get this through FDA, and we need to build a device and things like that. So we're working on all those different fronts. For the breath work, I'm having different conversation because enough people have come to me either through email or a variety of different media. And because there are some individuals on this campus that are quite interested in it. And what we are thinking of doing is, is gathering those individuals in having what we call a social and science. It's just a a set of sessions that we will have that will have people that can speak about, okay, what are the practices? What are the potential mechanisms? And more and equally importantly, what do we not know? You know, all of those are interesting, but I think we need to explore a little bit more that mechanism space because beyond belief, it would be nice to know how it works. And if you know that, you can figure out how to optimize it and where it is and where it's not useful. Because I have little doubt some of the claims probably aren't true. And so what's the difference? They all interact. They all intersect. I don't doubt that. But the origin is radically different. The neural pathways are different. Mm -hmm. They converge in certain places. So there's a lot of room for mechanistic studies to enhance the potential for therapeutic efficacy, both of the intermittent hypoxia, but also of breath work. I hope you enjoyed this episode and learned something new. Check back in two weeks for a new episode. Thanks for listening.